Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University and by BBC Northeast and Cumbria. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this podcast you'll hear highlights from our panel discussion, which we titled The Return of Podcasting. I think it's fair to say podcasting is having a major impact on the way we do journalism and factual storytelling, whether we work in radio or other types of media. Of course, podcasting has been around for a dozen years or more, but the more recent success of American podcasts like Serial and S-Town seems to have stirred up something new, making journalists in particular aware of podcasting's potential to attract new audiences and engage them in longer-form journalism and storytelling. So for this session, we brought together a terrific, knowledgeable group of panellists who were willing to share their views and experiences of journalism and factual storytelling through podcasting. First, we hear from Lena Prestwood, a former commissioning editor of documentaries at Channel 4 and head of factual storytelling at Renowned Films. Lena is producer of Fathers and Sons, winner of Podcast of the Year 2017 and a collaboration between Radio Wolfgang and online retailer Mr Porter. want you to become involved in dating again. Yeah. Which you're obviously thrilled by. I thought you were going to encourage me to go on a date. Yes. More or less. It's just a date. For you. <laughs> I just feel yeah. that I have lost the the impetus, the get up and go to to bother. So, why would you not take steps forward into trying to start dating? Can't be asked. I've been listening to podcasts for a long time and had a, a career in documentaries. So I just started talking to people and just saying, you know, just sort of about what was being made and found that Radio Wolfgang, which is actually weirdly started by someone who had a big career in TV and still does, um, George Lamb, um, and was overseen and exec by two TV refugees, um, Ellie and Harry. And they said, come, come and work with us. And then suddenly they got a, they got a pitch in for, that had been successful from Mr. Porter. This is actually some branded work. And before I knew what had happened, I suddenly went in for a chat and suddenly I was in the middle of production and had two weeks to turn around the first episode. So it's, like I say, it's a bit of an accident, really. And then uh, we made it. Um, it was really, you know, it, the theme was Fathers and Sons. It was, it was launched on Father's Day, and it was connected with uh, a charity who were wanted to encourage men to talk about um, health issues. So in each of the episodes, we were looking at a very different relationship between the father and son. So the first, I think the first three episodes, the first was about um, a father of a 15-year-old son who had a very serious cancer and whose prognosis wasn't brilliant. Uh, another one was about a power struggle in one of Sheffield's last uh, scissor factories uh, between a father and son. So the father had very different ideas how to run his business uh, compared to his son. Um, and then there was this, which was, ba- I love rom-coms. I adore rom-coms. I've always wanted to make a factual rom-com, so I was like, this is my final my chance. <laughs> I'm basically throwing a grenade at my TV career and moving full-time into audio. I have no plans. I don't know how the hell I'm going to do it. But I know that creatively, 
this is where I need to be because there's a a I love it just as a consumer but but B I think what's and what will come out probably from the discussion is the there's a it's scary but there's an autonomy and it's the wild west at the moment when it comes to podcasting and you need so much less equipment to go and tell your story and you can invite as many people or as few people into the process as you feel necessary as you want. I often feel, I, I do believe more heads are better than one. And this was certainly a group effort. I didn't knock this out myself. But it's, um, I feel like we're in a really interesting place with podcasts and um, more money's coming into it. Um, so that's how I ended up in podcast making that. But then that one, best podcast of the year and best branded. and. That's helped Wolfgang grow their business, which means they're getting to tell more stories. The other two producers on who worked on that series are unbelievably busy. Um, and I suppose it's a, yeah, I don't know, it just feels like a really healthy but very scary time podcasting. Next we meet Peter Dukes, investigative journalist and co-creator of Podcast Untold, about the unsolved murder of London private investigator Daniel Morgan. The podcast is a collaboration with Daniel's brother, Alistair Morgan, and actor Dee Mayer. Peter began his career writing thrillers for TV and most recently used crowdfunding to enable him to live-tweet the phone-hacking trial of Rebecca Brooks, Andy Coulson and others. I never want to see those pictures. If I looked at those pictures, the images would be burned in my memory until the day I died. Untold. The Daniel Morgan murder, the most investigated murder in British history. It's just over six weeks now since a private detective called Daniel Morgan was found dead in a car park of a pub in South London. It was gruesome. He'd been killed with an axe. 30 years ago, a private detective was brutally murdered, and it still hasn't been solved. I'm Peter Jukes, and I'll be exploring how one man and his family began to unravel the truth. Right from 2011, I knew the story when I was researching um, my first book on Murdoch. I came across the story of Daniel Morgan, which sort of was like a dark body underlying the phone hacking trial and all the dark arts. And spoke to Alistair and became more and more convinced this was the cause. And the book, I think, uh, has come out since the podcast, proves that the phone hacking was the benign side of what was going on in the British press, not just news of the world, and it started. The toxin entered the bloodstream with the murder of Danny Morgan. Anyway, not an easy story to tell legally, or in fact, narratively, because it goes over 30 years. There are endless bloody names. And I think the first time I saw this story, my dramatist hat was still on, and I was going, this is a 10-part Netflix series. Um, which it still may be, I'm developing it with war, but actually, as Lena says, if you get involved in a big project like that, I mean, you know you're going to wait years. You might get a script commission if you're one in a hundred, but you're still not one in a thousand, you're still one in a hundred to get that made, and I'd spent most of my life, I suppose my best work remaining in an unused script, in a, you know, but journalism, direct writing on blogs, crowdfunding, like, things like that, I could write immediately. Books were much more sociable as well. I thought I'd go into drama originally first. I went into drama, uh, radio, theatre, print, and then mainstream, uh, West End and, and, and radio, and then TV, because I thought I'd be lonely because uh, I'm a bit of a party animal just writing novels. But actually, journalism and anything interactive on the internet is just, you're never alone. 
So I think we've come to an impasse about 2015, I can't remember exact date. Couldn't get the story out. I've been writing articles about it on Byline. If you listen to the show, you know the mainstream media won't cover it. The BBC is very fearful, so is The Guardian, both of the police who are involved, police corruption involved in those. And of course, not just the murder press, but the Mail and the Mirror all worked with the murder suspects over the 25 years. They do not want to talk about it. So there's no way you're gonna go down the mainstream press. And I was sitting in a pub with Devia, who's my co-producer, who's also an actor. I've done quite a few radio plays with and we've got to know Alistair his partner. And I think she'd been listening to Serial, and she said, what was, what was she talking about? And I said, why don't we do a podcast? And we called Alistair, and the key thing was winning his trust and of his partner and his family. I said, why not? And then we crowdfunded the first 10,000 and uh, just did it, not knowing what we're doing in Devious Parents' spare bedroom. And, and I suppose, you know, exactly as you say, you know, you make a virtue of necessity uh, and it is a brilliant Wild West that we could do this. And thanks to ACAS to help distribute us. Thanks to, you know, we could bypass the normal organs of mass communication. And it's now had 8 million downloads. And the most amazing thing is that 60% um, of our audience is, like a lot of people here, is under, is under, 30, under 35. And though journalism is such a bad state that I... <laughs> compelled because nobody else is doing some stuff to join it. What I'm amazed is, is the interest in of young people in storytelling, in factual storytelling, unheard voices. Our final panellist is David McMillan, a BBC Tease reporter and producer of its monthly politics podcast. A stunning setting depicting the wonder of the region, the brilliance of neatly aligned turbines set amid crashing waves capturing natural forces and powering our world. The eastern sunlight illuminating the industrial ballet of the port where precision planning meets the spirit of adventure and the silhouette of the steelworks, a monument to the region's soul. That's what I would be saying if we were recording this on the Redcar Coast right now, but due to engineering problems, the problem being that the engineer is on holiday, uh, we're here in the BBC T studios instead. So the beautiful scene setting will have to come from our guests. So imagine the sparks of industrial innovation flying through the mind of Chris MacDonald of the MPI. But I'm a political reporter at BBC T, so I primarily report for radio, also do some, some report for uh, TV for Sunday politics. Um, but... When we're on the radio, for example, if I was doing a report on the budget, you'd have someone for four minutes, you'd talk for as much as you could for four minutes, or, or however, you know, that's usually the time period you have, maybe less, and then that was it done. And I suppose there was a frustration there that you can't really explore things in great depth. No, it's not to say that that's the wrong way to do it, because obviously radio is very successful, and television is very successful, and they do an excellent job at getting those facts across. But if you want to explore things in a bit more depth, the time on air wasn't really there. So we explored the idea of you know, doing a podcast um, as a way of going through that uh, and, and give things a little bit more attention. And when it started, it was quite a general kind of politics podcast, as in here's a local issue that happened recently, talk about that, here's a national issue, talk about that, here's something else, and then we were done. We've sort of evolved to make it more thematic. So the other one that I did before this was about Margaret Thatcher because she obviously was a very divisive figure in this region. 
Some people think she regenerated it, some people think she destroyed it. But there was a big exhibition at MIMA about Margaret Thatcher and her impact on the side. So we, we based a, a podcast around that to look at what she did for good, what she did for bad, or the perceptions of her art, and that sort of thing. And this kind of evolved from it. But the reason I was quite pleased to see this one appear is that it shows an example of the sort of political issue that's hard to discuss in a short period of time. And in this case, it's identity. If you think about the, you know, the Brexit vote, people talk about left-behind areas. A lot of what you experience on Teesside in particular, or you know, in County Durham, when you build coal fields, people had jobs that they really valued. It was part of their lives. And it wasn't just the money that it earned or the community that it involved. It was that ability to do something that you could be really proud of. And for a lot of people, replacing that, as in you know, the, the Margaret Thatcher walking with Owen, which sort of inspired the other podcast, replacing it with a job in retail or a call centre didn't give people that same sort of feeling of who they were. And so this is a, a, an example. We basically built a whole podcast around the idea of identity. We've got this thing, the Tees Valley, which is a new creation for sort of political reasons because there's a mayor. A lot of people locally don't see it as something they belong to. They see themselves as being from Middlesbrough or from Darlington. But nationally, it's kind of given the area a chance to rebrand. So you're able to explore these kind of uh, issues. But what else marks out podcasting as a very different kind of storytelling? Lena Prestwood again. I'm proud of this. I'm a member of Podcast Club. It's like a book club, but for podcasts. And meet every month and we discuss things. Last month we had um, exclusively foreign language podcasts. uh, And we were helped by the amazing work of Radio Atlas. I don't know if you've come across it at all. So they take um, foreign language podcasts and um, they subtitle it through video, so it's, the subtitles come up in real time, which means you can suddenly have access to the most incredible world of Scandinavian audio uh, work, so radio work, podcasts, that sort of thing. And it's fascinating because stylistically, it's very different to the American stuff, which, um, and there's a, a, this is what I'm learning as I'm kind of immersing myself in the scene, is that there's a real poetry and there's a literary quality <coughs> to podcasts from that part of the world. So, and that sense of craft and the idea of what the job of the narrative is there to do beyond taking it, act, uh, beyond it being perfunctionary and setting up the next bit of sync, it actually is about creating atmosphere. And I think one of the big things that everyone talked about S-Town was how literary it felt, how it felt like an audio novel. And I feel like that, I think that, that's the word, it's the craft in the storytelling that people have really responded to particularly well. So while you've got some, I think podcasts, maybe often historically are people in the studio talking about an issue and they don't take that much more time to edit as they do to create, you've got something that takes the, I suppose, the uh, the work of a documentary or or even a novel itself, and I think the, and I think that's the thing that people are really responding to. It's the craft, and the challenge is that craft does not come cheap. That takes time, and you either have to be someone who has the resources to have lots of spare time to work for free, quite often, or you have to find ways of funding it, or you know, as with Serial, you have to become you are affiliated with the most successful podcast of all time. <laughs> you know, so it's it's. Just, but I think that's. That's one of the factors for me that I think makes it so successful. And it's happened on TV now. People prefer to watch the new Blue Ocean, Ocean Planet, on slight time delay. Uh, there's certain things we want to see live, mm. like you know, political events, football, things like that. Fewer and fewer. Yeah, yeah. but they're fewer and fewer. And people, it's more like a library. 
And suddenly, though, when I go back and re-edit lots of bits of uh, Untold, I sort of thought of it like a kind of, like a library, like a box set, that, uh, and, and didn't mind the density of it. Some people said they had to listen twice, but I still thought that was better. As long as there was emotional integrity, that's why we went very sort of, with uh, Devious Sister, very kind of Hollywood schmaltz with the music to provide a narrative. If you didn't understand what was going on, you knew this bit was sad, <laughs> or this bit was happy, or this bit was mysterious. Um, and I, and I do think there are, you're right, this, the, it appeals to, it's journalism which also appeals, but it is journalism, to the senses yeah. and to the sense of kind of roundness. These are often where the stories, I think you alluded to it earlier when you said it, is that these are the stories that don't necessarily get past the stakeholders and the gatekeepers. These are the stories that are difficult. You can't tell them in an hour, you can't tell them in half an hour. They don't neatly fit with the needs of the advertisers. They're difficult. They're hard. They're hard to tell. They're hard to listen to. They're hard to consume. The themes aren't sexy all the time. So it needs someone who almost believes in them more. You know, it, to 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 do them justice. You know, and I think there's a reason. I think Serial was very much born of that. Very, very much born of that. And Brian Reed's work on S Town again. That was a long side project. Um, that, that took a long time, that was a long time in development, that wasn't clear, and I think the, the story of the production behind it is as interesting as the story itself in many ways. So yeah, we worked with, Acast had a good experience with, we worked with Audio Boom, chased us, headhunted us for the second series, because they'd helped with production, because he couldn't do it all her own, in a spare, spare room. Didn't quite work out, but those two companies dominate the landscape. Acast very good. The monetization of it is bizarre. I won't go into the details, but we've had a million downloads, first four minutes, anyway. Very complicated thing, and I think, because Britain is such a small market compared to America, very big, it's going to be like, it's the dangerous, it's like it's television market. In America, I work there, you can pitch to 27, it's probably 30 now with Netflix and things like that, broadcasters, so it's a seller's market. You had talent, you had a good project, you would say, here, by that point I came back, it was down to one and a half, two and a half broadcasters, ITV, BBC, and, and Channel 4. And so it was a monopsony, it's a buyer's market, and everything's funneled up the top. My fear is the commercialization of podcasts here will just duplicate that television mm. system. So, the, so what I think is good about the stuff that, you know, I think all three of us are doing, is by showing our subjectivity, then it gives the audience chance to discount it and, and not faking neutrality. Objectivity is not the same as neutrality. So if anybody's heard the Danny Morgan story, I was asked, well, imagine you get the suspects on or, yeah, well, you know, I tried, they would not reply. And after 30 years of the story being suppressed, balance or other objectivity, my point was get Alice's story out. You know what I mean? You have to see it. Whereas the BBC would perforce have to have both sides, and I've seen that at the Brexit debate, how badly wrong that goes when you, you know, balance a lie against the truth, flatters news with a groundless news. So I think we're going to have to reform our idea of, of objectivity, which sometimes might be meaning we have to be more open and personal about our biases. We are editors as much as we are journalists, I suppose, but we are also storytellers and creators, and I think every single podcast what's so great about it is because it comes in a way because it is so personal they they feel very personal and they feel very different so i i actually in the same way that i suppose okay this bear with me on this 
the reason that I think I'm doing a lot of research and work into grime music recently, like podcasting, it existed 10, 15, well, 15 years ago, and there was a there's this kind of bust narrative. And what happened was that it, it got into bed with mainstream music industry, the two weren't compatible, and it apparently died. It didn't die, it just went away and did its own thing. And then it's had a second revival, because precisely they learnt the lessons of, actually, if you try and replicate the systems and get into bed with the major labels, people can smell a rat. People, it's, I hate to use the word authenticity, because I think it's, it's almost a manufactured thing now, authenticity in and of itself. But I think we, there are lessons to be learned from grime music and grime artists, which is that the more you retain the control over what it is you're doing, the more you invert the power relationship that previously previously existed, the more you say to the bigger corporations and the triangular structures, the healthier it will be. How we do that remains to be seen, but there's a way of things that might be the regional thing, maybe the radio comes with podcasting and they do special edits for radio as opposed to traditionally it was the other way around. You know, and I think I think we just have to, yeah, just try not to get too excited <laughs> about the money and just try and remember that there, there are lessons to be learned from other, other forms of media. I think grime is an unexpected one. Um, I remember a few years ago I was at Sheffield Documentary Festival and Ira Glass was there. He was like the, the hottest ticket in town. Everyone was like creaming themselves because he was there. And it was fantastic and one of the questions from the audience was like, who do you make your... Like, who do you make them for? They're like, make them for ourselves. <laughs> like, and I, I think that's the secret to it. And I think it's if you think it's good if you i think people tend creators tend to be their harshest it's not always but often tend to be their their own harshest critics and then going back to the grime analogy the whole reason that grime succeeds and has succeeded and is so popular because it's by the creators for themselves and it feels authentic and it's real and it feels relevant and this it's a real misconception that millennials don't have attention spans it's just not true i mean the success of vice is because they they don't do short form, they don't do bite size. They do they, the story when I was working there and the the rock guide is it's as long as it needs to be. And sometimes you get it wrong, and sometimes it's self indulgent, and sometimes it isn't. But again, the beauty is we don't have this weird slot to fit into, and there there isn't this sort of dad at the disco feeling in podcasting, and that I think is really really key to why young audiences are getting it. Finally, we Skyped Andrew Bomford, who is a reporter on BBC Radio 4's PM programme. Andrew's five-episode podcast, The High Street Abduction, about the disappearance of a little girl from a Newcastle shop, won silver at this year's Audio and Radio Awards. We're bringing the full story to you now in these podcasts because what happened next is quite something, and the full story has never been told. Hello, is there an Northumbria police case? Again, how can I help? It started as a 101 non-emergency call on April the 13th last year at 4.55pm. Hello, yes, I'm one of the managers. There's a Primark on Northumbria Street in the middle of Newcastle yeah. and we've got a lost child in store, three years old, but it's over 20 minutes now and we've had the staff scouring the place and we just simply can't find her. The caller, Thomas Clay, is the manager of Primark on Northumberland Street in the centre of Newcastle. He says they've been looking for a lost child but more than 20 minutes have gone by and they haven't found her. Is it a girl or a boy? The call handler is Kate McCafferty. It's a three-year-old girl. How does Andrew think podcasting is changing radio journalism? Uh, for my sins, I've been doing this job for 30 years now. And uh, and so um, 
<laughs> the sake of sounding very old, I've seen a lot of changes. And, you know, I was always brought up to kind of take that kind of formal approach um, that the reporter is the kind of almost like an unseen presence very often in, in a story that the story isn't about you as the reporter. The story is about, you know, the story or the subject or the, the people you're interviewing. Um, and I think a lot has changed in recent times. And I think podcasting has probably got something to do with with that. Uh, you know, this informal style that you, you mentioned is definitely having an effect. And um, and there's there is I think, you know, there's more encouragement now, I guess, to sort of insert yourself to some extent into the storytelling, which can be. You know, I think there's a line there you have to be quite careful not to cross because you are not the story. And, and I, have, you know, I, I think it's really important to always remember that you are not the story, but your take on the story and how um, you come to it, what your thoughts are about it, um, you know, your reactions to what is happening. Sometimes it's another way of telling the story and it's another way of connecting, I guess, with the listener um, to um, you know, if you can bring some of that into it. And certainly, I think, um, you know, programs, um, you know, like This American Life, um, Serial, um, those sorts of things, I think they, they did open a bit of a door to people to realise that actually you can reveal a bit of the craft, if you like, of um, of reporting. You can, you can reveal a bit about how... Um, the stories are put together sometimes uh, and actually i think the listeners you know quite often like that you know because they like to feel that they're being taken on the journey with the reporter who's who's doing it and so i think that has opened the door um to an extent you know i'm not sure where the line is uh, between going too far um but i think it's a good thing in a way to have that more relaxed form of, of storytelling and, and and podcasting has definitely helped with that and i think it's definitely having an effect on you know kind of conventional radio as well um in the way that we're reporting stories in 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 you know kind of normal radio programs depends on the program but you know certainly programs like the pm program i think are a much more relaxed kind of program where you know we are encouraged to sort of push the boundaries a little bit in in storytelling uh, how we tell the stories, you know, use of sound and that kind of thing. And uh, and so it's definitely more a part of a, the job for a reporter now to think of kind of creative ways of telling those stories and, and you know, moving on from that much more formal style of storytelling that, uh, that, you know, I was certainly brought up to do. And what does Andrew see are the challenges in staying true to the facts and chronology of events when doing journalism by podcast? You know, there's definitely a sense of you want to bring each individual podcast to a point you know where you want the listener to find out what, what happened next of course um and so if you're telling a story certainly uh, chronologically uh, which is which is what uh, we did with um, high street abduction um then um you need to be really careful because it, it happened in a certain order and and you know and the point of what we were trying to get across with that was to tell people minute by minute what was happening and so so there is a difficulty there because you kind of reach a certain point in the story uh, and you and you think well that's the end of episode two and we need to go on to episode three 
um, you know, maybe that point in the story wasn't such a dramatic moment. So you need to go a little bit beyond there just to kind of give people that hook to bring them back for the next episode. And so, um, you know, so there's a there's a temptation there, but I think it's something you've got to fight because, um, you know, because, um, you know, you're telling a story and you've got to do that as accurately as you possibly can. And so, um, so, so you've got to find a way of you know reaching those moments but doing so you know in you know with the the correct chronology in mind if you're doing a chron chronological approach um so it's tricky that is tricky um and i'm sure there's a temptation sometimes to think oh well, if you know if if we if we change the order of things here that's going to be a much more dramatic end to episode three and bring people back for episode four you know but um but you're a journalist you know you're not a you're not a, a filmmaker or a or a uh, uh, or a or a storyteller, uh, you know, or a novelist, or something like that. You know, you, this is journalism. It's got to be factual, and so uh, I'd say that is the most important rule, rather than you know the technique of the storytelling. So, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a balance there, and I think there are certainly lines that you should not cross. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University and BBC North Cumbria. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>